0: Welcome, I am Dylan, typically you see me playing guitar, I am the worship minister here at Echo, and every once in a while, they let me make a fool of myself. Uh, many, many weeks ago, we were in the midst of something we call a series, um, and then David was like, oh, I'm, I'm going to move far away. and So we stopped doing that series, right? But I'm going to go ahead and pick back up, and go back to it. It's called Jesus B.C., Um, And we sort of based it around the premise that God is the same in the Old Testament as in the New Testament. Two testaments, same God. He didn't undergo some major personality change in the intervening years between uh, the Old Testament and New Testament. The prophets and and Jesus himself. Um, and, And furthermore, there's just this concept that the Old Testament itself kind of speaks to something and points to something outside of itself. There's a lot of prophecy, uh, a lot of foreshadowing, and, and these little tastes of redemption, these little tastes of what God has planned. In the Old Testament, there there are all these various methods of atonement and redemption that God has going on, things like burnt offerings, the, the tabernacle and how that's set up um, sacrificial lambs and things like that. These, these all kind of draw us into the story and and God's plan for how he's going to take us back to where he created us, to Eden, to, to shalom, to unity with him. And so it all kind of points to something outside of itself. Namely, we find out Jesus, right? Um, He's the fulfillment of these prophecies. He, he defeats death once and for all. These imperfect systems of atonement are fulfilled and completed and perfected in Christ. In who he is, in what he did in his sacrifice on the cross. So it, it's worth understanding the Old Testament in light of that. In light of who Christ is. We have the answers to the test, right? So we can go back and, and we can... Fill in these blanks and these mysterious things. So, so the whole premise is God operates perhaps more similarly than we give him credit for. So, we've looked at several aspects of God's character in this series. We've looked at, first, we looked at um, his holiness and how that is manifested in the Old Testament and the New Testament, his his mercy, and then on Father's Day, you know, six months ago or whatever that was, uh, we looked at him as a protector, as a father figure. So, today we're going to look at him as a healer. Um, we've got a couple of prime examples. Might be a little bit of overkill to hit multiple of them, but we're kind of going to do it in a narrative fashion, and I think it's worth looking at those just to get that that overall picture and to bridge that gap uh, between the old and new. If you got your Bibles, go ahead. and uh, We're going to turn to 2 Kings 4. I'm kind of just going to attack this. I'm going to read through it, um, and, and I'd just like to take the stories of, for a bit of of what they are. Some of this uh, we went through in more detail uh, when we went through 1st and 2nd Kings um, in our study of that. So if you want to, go back on the website. 2016 was a good year for Old Testament scholarship at ECHO. So you can expect the scholars to to preach a little bit better on that. Go back to that. Steve's good at what he does. All right, we're going to pick up 2nd Kings 4. We're going to go 8 through 37. So this is uh, the story of the Shunammite son restored to life, for what it's worth. We're looking at Elisha, who is successor of Elijah, double portion and all that. So he's a prophet. He's good at what he does too. We're going to see that in here. Uh, it'll be great. So one day, Elisha went to Shunamm, and a well-to-do woman was there. A uh, well-to-do, side note, Hebrew, uh, it calls her great There's some connotations of not necessarily just wealth, but um, that she was great in character, that she uh, was well respected. She was on track. So a well-to-do woman was there. She urged him to stay for a meal. So whenever he came by, he stopped there to eat. She said to her husband, I know that this man who often comes our way is a holy man of God. Let's make a small room on the roof and put it Put in it a bed and a table and a chair and a lamp for him. Then he can stay there whenever he comes to us. Pretty simple. Rich people, let's make a suite on the roof for the prophet. Um, But it's, you know, a bed, a chair. All the things the prophet would need as he's passing through. So she does it. She sets up this room for Elisha. Elisha loves it. He stops by whenever he comes through. uh, And he's, whenever he's going that way. And so it strikes him. God is doing good stuff. He loves doing good stuff. Let's see if this lady needs anything. Like, I'm a prophet. I've got power from God. I can help her out. So he asks, we're going to skip down to 14 here. He's talking to Gehazi. He's like, what does she need? She's like, I don't need anything. It's cool. I'm, I'm good. Um, so he asks Gehazi, what can be done for her? Gehazi says, she has no son and her husband is old. Then Elisha said, call her. So he called her, and she stood in the doorway. About this time next year, Elisha said, you will hold a son in your arms. No, my lord, she objects forcefully. Uh, Please, man of God, don't mislead your servant. She's getting a little defensive here. You can tell that this is probably a dream that she has in the Old Testament days. Yeah, I mean, kids were... Everything that's that's your life insurance. They're supposed to take care of you. And and kids were a blessing from the Lord. And it seems like maybe she had given up on this, right? This is a dream that she had had um, and had kind of let it go. So she kind of freaks out. She's like, "Don't don't lie to me. That's that's not what I'm interested in." Um, but he he insists. The woman became pregnant, and the next year. About that same time, she gave birth to a son, just as Elisha had told her. The child grew, and one day, he went out to his father, who was was with the reapers. He said to his father, my head, my head. His father told a servant, carry him to his mother. After the servant had lifted him up and carried him to his mother, the boy sat on her lap until noon, and then he died. She went up and laid him on the bed of the man of God and shut the door and went out. She called her husband and said, Please send me one of the servants and a donkey so that I can go to the man of God quickly in return. Why go to him? He asked. It's not the new moon or the Sabbath. That's all right, she said. So it kind of seems like she didn't even tell him that the kid had died. Apparently they only go to the prophet at certain times. She's like, don't worry about it. I'm just going to go see him. So she she gets it. She saddles the donkey and said to her servant, lead on, don't slow down for me unless I tell you. So she set out and came to the man of God at Mount Carmel. When he saw her in the distance, the man of God said to his servant Gehazi, look, there's the Shunammite. Run to meet her and ask, are you all right? Is your husband all right? Is your child all right? Everything is all right, she said. Apparently, she did not want to deal with Gehazi. She wants to deal with the prophet himself. So she goes on. When she reached the man of God at the mountain, she took hold of his feet. Gehazi came over to push her away, but the man of God said, leave her alone. She is in bitter distress, but the Lord has hidden it from me and has not told me why. Did I ask you for a son, my Lord, she said. Didn't I tell you, don't raise my hopes? She kind of lets, lets him have it a little bit. She's not ashamed. And that's something that I love about this woman and her faith. She knows, God gave me this son. And when he dies, she knows that's not how this is going to go down. This doesn't make any sense. That's not how she understood God to operate. And I think there was enough faith in her that she comes and she just says, Look, I didn't ask for this. You gave this to me. Don't take it away now. And I think it kind of telegraphs. You you could see that God's probably going to honor this. But um, there's some bumps in the road here. So picking back up in 29, Elisha said to Gehazi, Tuck your cloak into your belt. Take my staff in your hand and Run. Don't greet anyone you meet, and if anyone greets you, do not answer. Lay my staff on the boy's face. But the child's mother says, As surely as the Lord lives and as you live, I will not leave you. So, he he got up and followed her. Gehazi goes ahead. He tries it. He gets there. Lays the staff on the boy's face. Nothing. He comes back and, and he says, the Boy has not awakened back in thirty two when Elisha reaches the house there was a boy there was the boy lying dead on his couch. He went in and shut the door on the two of them and prayed to the Lord. Then he got on the bed as he stretched himself and he stretched himself out on him, mouth to mouth, eyes to eyes, and hands to hands, as he stretched himself out the boy 's body grew warm. Elisha turned away and walked back and forth in the room. And then got on the bed and stretched out on him once more. The boy sneezed seven times and opened his eyes. Elisha summoned Gehazi and said, Call the Shunammite. And he did. When she came, he said, Take your son. She came in, fell at his feet, and bowed to the ground. Then she took her son and went out. I mean, in essence, this story... It is about faith, right? That's how it's normally preached. And it shines through pretty well, I think. When you think about uh, stories like that, about miracles and, and healing and, and and bringing people back to life, um, these aren't necessarily the first stories you think of. You think, Jesus, he's going around doing things like this. These aren't the first hits on my Google search mentally. Um, I think it's often easy to think of the stories of Jesus and healing in this way. Many people coming to him and they leave with a miracle. And Jesus saying things like, go in peace. Your faith has healed you. But this, the story itself, does a pretty good job, I think, uh, of illustrating God. Showing that full spectrum of his character. Of extending grace and goodness. uh, Even before Jesus comes down to start his ministry, God is is healing people God is doing all kinds of things and not necessarily even just for his people that's part one and we're going to have a nice little bonus part here further down in chapter four you get we get a bonus Old Testament New Testament link for you in feeding a hundred people this is a sidebar so it, it, it'll be what it is but let 's just look at forty two through uh, through forty four a man came from uh, Baal Shalishah bringing the man of God twenty loaves of barley bread, baked from the first ripe grain, along with some heads of new grain. Give it to the people to eat, Elisha said. How can I set this before a hundred men, his servant asked. But Elisha answered, Give it to the people to eat, for this is what the Lord says. They will eat and have some left over. Then he set before them, and they ate and had some left over, according to the word of the Lord. It makes sense, we We're thinking back to what Markel was talking about last week, when Jesus was asking his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they give answers like, some people say you're Elijah. Some people say you're John the Baptist, which seems slightly insane to me since they were both kind of around at the same time. And it's not like a Superman-Clark-Kent thing. John the Baptist and Jesus were seen in the same place at the same time. That one doesn't add up. So some say he's Elijah, some say he's John the Baptist. Some say he's one of the prophets. It makes sense, right? He's doing similar things to what they know the prophets have done—things like feeding lots of people with little food, things like uh, raising people from the dead and healing people. So let's go ahead and let's keep marching on. We're gonna we're gonna jump real quick to chapter five, and this is what we really went over last year. Um, this is the story of Naaman. If you want more detail. Go ahead and look that up, uh, but I want to hit this again because I think it illustrates pretty well who God is and, and how he worked in both the old and new. Uh, so we're going to pick right up Second Kings 5. So Naaman uh, is healed of leprosy here. So let's go, uh, we're going to jump right to verse 5. Now Naaman was commander of the army of the king of Aram. He was a great man in the sight of his master and highly regarded because through him the Lord had given victory to Aram, who was a valiant soldier, but he had leprosy. So, side note here, he was an outsider. He was not an Israelite. He's not one of God's chosen people in the Old Testament, but God is working through him. He's giving him victory, he's showing him favor. Um, and he's only successful, it says, basically because of God's blessing. Uh, so bands of raiders from Aram had gone out and taken captive a young girl from Israel. She had, and she served Naaman's wife. She said to her mistress, If only my master could see the prophet who is in Samaria, he would cure him of his leprosy. First of all, I, I love the faith of this little girl. Um... And that, being from Israel, she knows of the prophets. She knows of God's healing power. And also, that she had the faith that she would dare to speak up. I mean, she's a servant. And I think that also, in a way, speaks to the quality of maybe Naaman and his wife as well. That they were not necessarily quick to, to judge or, or react to what this girl was willing to say. But instead, verse 4, Naaman went to his master. He told him what the girl from Israel had said. And the king goes, by all means, go. I will send a letter to the king of Israel. So Naaman left, taking with him ten talents of silver, six thousand shekels of gold, and ten sets of clothing. The letter that he took to the king of Israel read this. With this letter I am sending my servant Naaman to you, so that you may cure him of his leprosy. I think that's pretty fun. (laughs) It's like, they didn't say anything about the king. And this is a a bit of what we got into last year. There's a lot of international relations and and, and political things at play here with uh, basically the king of Syria sending a letter to the king of Israel saying, hey, go ahead and heal this guy for me. So he freaks out. The king of Israel in verse 7 As soon as the king of Israel reads the letter, he tore his robes and said, Am I God? Can I kill a man and bring him back to life? Why does this fellow send someone to me to be cured of leprosy? See, now he's trying to pick a quarrel with me. He sent the letter to the wrong guy. I mean, probably politically the right guy. He maybe even has to go through the king to get to Elisha, but there's something to be said here about The willingness of the girl to speak, the willingness of Naaman to listen, the willingness of the king of Syria to send him. But then the king of Israel is like, what am I supposed to do with this? Uh, And and that speaks a lot. Sometimes the the people who are supposed to be closest to God, the Israelites, and their back and forth relationship with him, right? Right? When we went through 1st and 2nd Kings together, uh, we saw so much of that. These guys who essentially all proved to be fairly worthless on the faith spectrum. They're supposed to be leading God's people, but they get pretty consumed with themselves, and they neglect God, and they uh, they get distracted from who he, he is and how he operates. But Elisha, being a man of God, Hears that the king of Israel had torn his robes. So we're back in verse 8 here. And he sends him a message. It's not even like the king went and found Elisha. Elisha found out and he goes to the king. Dummy, I'm right here. Um, So he says, why have you torn your robes? Have the man come to me. And he will know that there is a prophet in Israel. So Naaman went with his horses and chariots and stopped at the door to Elisha's house. Elisha sent a messenger to him to say, Go, wash yourself seven times in the Jordan, and your flesh will be restored to you, and you will be cleansed. But Naaman went away angry. He said, I thought that surely he would come out to me and stand and call on the name of the Lord his God and wave his hand over the spot and cure me of my leprosy. Are not Abana... And Farpar, the rivers of Damascus better than all the waters of israel couldn 't I wash in them and be cleansed? so he turned and went off in a rage, not what he expected to hear, something so simple and, and I think he expected a face to face meeting with elisha, but he doesn 't get that on the first run, and it it freaks him out when he doesn 't get. What he expected when he arrives, he goes into a rage and essentially says, all right, that's fine, thanks for nothing, I'm gone. But his servants come back at him on this. I think uh, there's something to be said about their perspective in this. Naaman's a man of power, he's a man uh, of respect, and when he feels slighted, he says, forget this, I'm out. But his servants are a little... Are a little sharper, they have a different perspective, they're lower on the totem pole, right? They're not polluted by thinking that they're better than than anything necessarily. So they come back to him and they say, My father, if the prophet had told you to do some great thing, would you not have done it? How much more then when he tells you wash and be cleansed? So he does it. He went down. He dipped himself in the Jordan seven times as the man of God told him. And his flesh was restored. Like that of a young boy. I think that's just something that that I want to reiterate again. I like the fact that these servants were willing to speak up. That when they see, this is just a simple thing. You don't necessarily need a great thing because you think you're great. Just do it. And the humbling of Naaman begins there. He says, I guess you have a point there. Why not just do it? Right? So he does. And lo and behold, it works. So they go back to Elisha. They stand before him. And uh, in verse 15, right in the middle of it, he says to him, Now I know that there is no God in all the world except in Israel. So please, accept a gift from your servant. He's trying to give him all this stuff that he brought with him. The prophet answered, As surely as the Lord lives, whom I serve, I will not accept a thing. And even though Naaman urged him, he refused. If you will not, said Naaman, please let me, your servant, be given as much earth as a pair of mules can carry. For your servant will never again make burnt offerings and sacrifices to any other God but the Lord, elisha tells him, Go in peace so there's a couple interesting highlights here, basically, just still that juxtaposition between uh, Naaman and his elevated position. he was not willing to accept the idea of of dipping into the muddy river of, of israel it 's not glamorous it 's not interesting it 's not what he was looking for, and I think often that is something that hinders us to we think that God should be coming in with a big glowing sign. And he comes in, he slips in under the radar with something simple. I mean, that's basically Jesus in a nutshell. The Jews were looking for a savior when he shows up of a more immediate and, and temporal nature. They were under the oppression of, uh, at the time, of the Romans. But before that, the Syrians, the Egyptians, Babylonians, and and all of these Just this carousel of oppression. And they were looking for an end to that. They were looking for a warrior. They were looking for a king. But Jesus comes in trying to fill real emotional voids. Or emotional. No, eternal voids. He's thinking on a a broader level. That can be maddening to have your expectations shattered like that. I think we see that in Naaman. He gets ticked when it doesn't... Uh, on the surface, looked like what he was looking for. Certainly, uh, some of Jesus' contemporaries were displeased with what he came looking to do. They went as far as disposing of him. Which, aside from that being the <laughs> the plan of God all along, didn't didn't necessarily speak well to them. And I suspect sometimes it's the same for us. God's healing, God's timing, his movements are often outside of our expectations. And we can take this and we can uh, do some some adjustment of our perspective. I want to also look just a little bit at the Jordan River where, uh, where John the Baptist, you know, Clark Kented with Jesus, both the same place at the same time. He baptizes him there. It's a place of spiritual transformation. Uh, and it's a place that God returns to. To the point that. Uh, it's where Naaman was healed. It's where Jesus was baptized. It's the same setting. And it's worth looking that maybe. God wasn't necessarily. Just looking to heal this guy. He was looking for. As Jesus was. A spiritual transformation. A deeper Change in this man's heart. And he found it, right? Once he humbles himself and he goes and does it, he immediately comes back to Elijah and says, I see now God is the only God. The Lord is the only God, and I'm done messing around. He acknowledges that, and I think probably that's really what God was after, right? His heart. The miracle couldn't be bought. He tries offering him so much and uh, gets turned down. Spoiler alert, our buddy Gehazi decides after that 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 was a dumb idea, that he should have got something for that. Um, So he waits a little bit and then sneaks out the back door and goes to get him some shekels and a couple pairs of clothes. And he gets in trouble later on. It doesn't go well for him. Anyways, sometimes uh, I wonder why... These kinds of stories and, and these, this imagery is so repetitious in the scriptures. Um, but it's not necessarily hard to put it together once you think about it. I mean, uh, we're so distractible. We're so easily uh, pulled away like the Israelites from who God is, how he operates. And he doesn't change, but we do. Our perspectives change. And that's a lot uh, going back to what Markel was talking about last week as well. Like it's all in how we are viewing God. He's always here, but are we looking at him? He's always doing something, but are we participating? Are we allowing our ears to be open to him? God has to drill these points because we're pretty slow on the uptake. I know I myself am a bit ADD, probably more than most people, to the point I think probably properly diagnosable, adult ADD going on here. It's just a struggle of mine. Every day, often minute to minute, I struggle to hold my focus. To accomplish anything, really. And all of my good intentions, and believe me, I have all the best intentions. They're fantastic, my intentions. But they're constantly nullified uh, by, by my inability to stay focused, to follow through on things that I really care about, and it's really frustrating. Most people probably don't have that, that much of an immediate struggle, but it's obvious that we all do to an extent, right? That's why we have to come here every week. That's why we have weekly church. That's why we come back to the table of communion every week. That we can refocus ourselves, we can recenter ourselves on who Christ is, on who who has been for all time the same yesterday, today, and forever. And we need to just take our view and our faith and not let ourselves think we're great, not let ourselves think, we deserve to be answered in this way or we deserve to have this thing. That's not how God operates. It never has been. But we come every week and we do this. We sing. We have communion. Someone preaches. In in essence, that's all I'm trying to get across to you today. Let's take this opportunity to see ourselves for who we are. To see God for who he is and correct how we perceive that. Let me pray for us. God, I thank you for these uh, stories, for these logs of who you are and how you operated in the Old Testament. We thank you for Jesus that he came that he took your power and your healing and your blessing and he distributed it the way that you would have done. We ask that you would help us to, to see you for who you are. We ask that you would help us to see each other and ourselves the way that you see us. That we would be able to humble ourselves, that we would be able to open our eyes, to open our ears to your promptings, to your ways, little by little. God, that we wouldn't be quite as distractible, that we would accomplish what we set out to do here weekly. And that we would grow our community and our faith and our ability to help each other stay focused on who you are. That we may accomplish kingdom things. That we may grow closer to you. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for this church that we have to gather before you and seek you together. We love you. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.